Philippians chapter 3, and we'll be looking at verses 2 through 11. Philippians 3, 2 through 11. This is God's Word. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the tribe of Israel, of the tribe of Benja- of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith." that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that this evening, through the preached word, we would know Jesus Christ, that we would know him and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings, that we would become like him in his death, that by any means possible we too might attain to the resurrection from the dead. Send your spirit, Lord God, to lead us into the truth this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. One of my favorite hymns of all time is uh, Rafe Vaughn Williams' arrangement of All People That on Earth Do Dwell. It's sung to the tune... Uh, often referred to as Old Hundredth. Williams wrote that arrangement for the coronation of Elizabeth II in 1953. We sing another arrangement of that same tune when we sing the doxology. Did you know that tune comes out of Geneva during the time of John Calvin's ministry? The church has been singing that tune for over 450 years. And whenever I hear William's arrangement, especially when there's this loud, powerful pipe organ shaking the whole building, I'm, I'm just, I'm very deeply moved. It's very hard for me to sing the song, especially when I get to the fourth verse. It's very hard for me to sing that fourth verse in William's arrangement without just crying. The words of that fourth verse strike me especially deep every time I sing it. For why the Lord our God is good, his mercy is forever sure, his truth at all times firmly stood, and shall from age to age endure. Now that fourth verse 
seems an especially appropriate response to the text that we have before us this evening. You've no doubt heard and read this Bible passage many times. This passage brings before our hearts that God is good, that his mercy is forever sure, that his truth has always stood and it shall from age to age forever endure. We will spend all eternity with Christ, glorying in him as being worth losing everything in this world. In our union with Christ, we have received his righteousness and we share in his resurrection. He has saved us not by works performed by us, but by his own grace and his own love for us. And so when you get to the great throne room scene of Revelation 4 and 5, the song which is sung to Christ is one of his great worth on account of his redeeming work and on account of his creating a people who are themselves a kingdom and a priests and are priests to God. So if we don't enjoy the truths of Philippians chapter 3, then we're probably not going to enjoy being in heaven. Because we're forever going to sing the truth that Christ's mercy is sure. And we're going to be singing that song from age to age to age to age to age for all eternity. Three very easy points for us this evening. Look out, sell out, come out. Look out, sell out. And come out first. Look out. That's verses 2 and 3. Look here with me in verses 2 and 3. Paul says it here three times in verse 2. Look out, look out, look out. Well, look out for who? Look out for the dogs, the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Who is he talking about? Well, these three labels describe one particular group which has been pestering the Philippian church with false teaching. The Judaizers. The Judaizers were a group of Jewish teachers who confessed the name of Jesus Christ. And yet they encouraged Christians to continue keeping the ceremonial law of Moses. And they combined that in with Jesus Christ and said, Jesus plus the ceremonial law, keeping it, is what you must do in order to be justified. And one aspect of the ceremonial law that the Judaizers often seemed to elevate above all others uh, within the ceremonial law was circumcision. Paul ran into these people constantly during his ministry among the Gentiles. You can hardly go through any of Paul's letters without the Judaizers showing up in some form or fashion. We get a picture of what they were teaching very clearly uh, when you turn to a passage like Acts 15. And it's right there in verse 1. It leads to this Jerusalem council. But some men came down from Judea, and they were teaching the brothers, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. The Judaizers taught you cannot be saved by Jesus Christ unless you were also circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses. And Paul calls the men who are teaching this dogs. The Jews often called Gentiles dogs. And that's what's so ironic about what Paul says here in verse 2. He turns it right back on them and says, no, 
The Gentiles are not dogs. You Judaizers who are perverting the gospel by pointing people back to the ceremonial law, you're the dogs. You're the workers of evil. You're the ones who want to mutilate the flesh, circumcision. And Paul knows that circumcision in the flesh is no part of salvation in Jesus Christ. And therefore, the Judaizers are merely seeking to perform this among people to build themselves up as teachers and ultimately for no purpose. So Paul says, look out for these guys. Don't take in any of their teaching or listening to what they have to say. Look out. Why? Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. The Judaizers, they may be circumcised in the flesh. They may be telling you to be circumcised in the flesh, but they're not truly circumcised. Why? Because true circumcision is not a matter of cutting the flesh. True circumcision is that which is of the heart. And Christians are those who have been circumcised in their hearts and are the true circumcision. We are those, as Paul says in here in verse 3, we are those who worship by the Spirit and glory in Jesus Christ. We do not, as the end of verse 3 says, we do not put confidence in the flesh. We're not trying to do something to our bodies in order to be justified before God. So let's put this picture together. Paul commands the Philippians. He says, look out. Watch out for those who teach that the ground of your salvation is Jesus plus confidence in the flesh. Jesus plus what you achieve in the flesh. Jesus plus anything else you might think you need to supply in order to be saved. Look out for those who teach that. It's amazing how sneakily confidence in the flesh makes its way into a Christian's understanding of salvation. It happens even when we're not expecting it. I grew up in a church tradition that was full of Jesus plus something else. It didn't set out to do that. It just gradually happened. It was Jesus plus receiving the right baptism and being a part of the right church. Some of you may uh, have grown up in or know of the Roman church context, Jesus plus the proper reception of the sacraments. Some of you may have experience with a church context where it's Jesus plus a certain type of experience or manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It's easy for Christians of all stripes to start placing their theological traditions into the place of Jesus himself and then make the tradition along with Jesus the ground of salvation. And what is common in all Jesus plus gospels is that when push comes to shove, Jesus gets discarded and all you end up with is the plus, whatever it is. The plus comes to, to, comes to dominate the teaching. And the centrality of Christ uh, crucified and resurrected and received by faith alone, all of that gets kind of pushed out to the side. That's why we must insist on salvation by faith alone in Christ alone, because it's the only message that guarantees that Jesus Christ remains front and center. We who have fled to Jesus Christ alone, look what we have in verse 3. 
we are enabled to worship in, in the Spirit and we glory in Jesus Christ. We are those who've been liberated from all of these extra fleshly requirements for salvation. And that's good news because in our flesh we have absolutely nothing to offer to a holy God. So look out. Don't allow a teaching to come even into your heart. And it's a fight. But don't even allow a teaching to come into your heart which suggests that having begun by the Spirit, having begun in Christ by the Spirit, you can actually finish the race by the flesh and you can be perfected by the flesh. It's Christ alone. Look out. Second, sell out. That's verses 4 through 7. Sell out. The Judaizers placed their confidence for salvation in the accomplishments of their flesh and how, how many badges of the Jewish religion that they could place upon themselves and show off to other people. And, but Paul says, verse 4, look, if y'all want to talk about confidence in the flesh, I've got even more than these Judaizers do. I'm more, I've got better Jewish credentials than even they do. And he lists out all of his accomplishments here in Judaism. He says, I was circumcised in accordance with the law of Moses. I I actually know the tribe that I'm descended from. Not every Jew could say they knew what tribe they were descended from. Paul says, I know what tribe I'm descended from. I I was a Pharisee, the strictest set of Judaism. So zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers that I persecuted the church. And you could not accuse me of breaking the law, but, verse 7, I have lost all of that confidence in the flesh. I've lost all of that religiosity, all that religious baggage. And I've lost it all because Jesus Christ is better than all of that. Paul says to the Philippians, look, if you want to see somebody who once followed the Judaizers method of placing confidence in the flesh, look at me. Look at me. But guess what? I've given it all up for the sake of Jesus Christ. The Judaizers who boast of their accomplishments, they've got nothing on me, and I've still given it up. From Paul's point of view, if anyone wants to be saved, they must give up all reasons for boasting in the flesh. You must lose all in order to gain Christ. You must lose all in order to gain all. Paul is really just demonstrating here how the teaching of our Lord Jesus worked out in Paul's own life, isn't he? Remember the rich young ruler? Rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? You know, uh, know, I've I've kept all the commandments and... uh, You know, I'm just waiting on you to pronounce me, ready to go in. Look at all this great things that I've done for the Lord. And Jesus says, well, here's what you lack. Sell everything you own, give to the poor, and follow me. Jesus literally told the rich young ruler, sell out. And the man left Jesus sorrowful, for he had many possessions. The rich young ruler was not willing to lose it all in order to gain Christ. There was something still holding his heart, something that built up his pride and his fleshly accomplishments that he couldn't give up in order to gain Jesus. Christ will not only have part of us, he will have all of us or nothing. There's no in-between. He will have all of you or he'll have none of you. 
In Paul's life, Jesus appeared on the road to Damascus in all of his resurrected glory and demanded that Paul give up everything that Paul lists out in verses 4 through 6. I mean, this was a 180 for this man who was advancing in the traditions of his fathers. And yet when Jesus shows up on the road to Damascus and says, you're going to be my witness, Paul leaves it all behind in order to follow Jesus. He lost it all that he could gain Christ. I love the story of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' call to ministry. Dr. Lloyd-Jones, in his early 20s, he had it all. He had the best medical training available at that time, and it's in the 20s, uh, in England. And he was in a medical practice in the most prominent practice in London. He had grown up with financial struggles, but now, in his early 20s, He had a promising career in medicine ahead of him. He would be, for the rest of his life, he would be rubbing elbows with the elites and all of the high society in London. But then the headlines hit the London paper one morning. Dr. Lloyd-Jones had given up a promising, prominent medical career in London to go be a preacher somewhere in in a backwater city in Wales. And years later, when some Christians tried to commend him for giving up so much for the sake of the gospel, Lloyd-Jones was insistent. I gave up nothing. I gave up nothing. He sold out of the world in order to gain Christ because he knew what he had gained by giving that up. Where do you put your confidence Have you sold out to Jesus Christ? One of the surest ways to decipher where you place your confidence is to ask yourself what in this life you hold most dear. Perhaps it's a relationship with a spouse or with a child. Perhaps it's a monetary position that you have. It's the most dearest thing that you have. Perhaps it's a career ladder. Perhaps your retirement, it's the most dear thing you have in this life. Perhaps you're one who the dearest thing in your life is all of this church stuff. And you may be one who glories more in your identity as a Presbyterian than you actually do in Jesus Christ himself. I have talked to a fair number of Reformed Presbyterians who appeared to be far more zealous for the traditions of their fathers than they were for Jesus himself. If you want to know where you're placing your confidence, imagine yourself before the great throne room of Jesus Christ. And when he asked the question, why should I admit you into the company of the redeemed? I don't know that he'll ask that question, but let's just say for the sake of argument, he does. If he asks the question, why should I let you in here? If your answer is anything other than, you should not admit me for anything in myself, but you have promised to put me in here because I'm united to Jesus Christ. That's why I go in. If if our answer is anything other than that, we're wrongly placing our confidence in something fleshly. Nobody will stand before the throne and be able to enter into everlasting joy because they were faithful churchgoers and they didn't do anything too scandalous and they had a good family. 
because we're sinners. We enter into life by grace alone, and nothing in our flesh commends us before the throne. We can't even perform any good apart from Christ anyways. That's why he says in John 15, Abide in me, for apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. That's why the words found in the hymn, Rock of Ages, are especially appropriate. Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? In other words, even if I was the most zealous person for Jesus Christ who ever lived, and even if I cried tears of repentance forever, what does it go on to say? Could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no longer know? These for sin could not atone. My crying over my sin is not going to get me in. My zeal to spread the gospel is not going to give me in because these for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone sell out. Just sell out. Give up the things in this world that you're trying to find identity in. They're not going to get you anywhere. Sell out. Give up this confidence in your flesh to save yourself and then find salvation in Christ alone. Third, come out. Look out, sell out, come out. Come out, verses 8 through 11. Paul has lost everything that he might be found in Christ, and being found in Jesus Christ results in what? Resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 11. Paul is willing to lose anything and everything, anything and everything, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul is looking forward to the day when Jesus will descend from heaven and his voice, the voice of Jesus, will call forth the dead for, judge, for judgment. And those who are found in Jesus Christ will experience a greater manifestation of what Lazarus experienced in John chapter 11. Lazarus, come forth! And Jesus comes out and calls everybody out of the grave. Come out! Come out! And Paul loses anything and everything that he might hear his Savior say, Paul, come out. John Murray, in his well-known work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, he says in that book, that the doctrine of union with Christ is really the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. Now, why is that? Well, we see something of that all-encompassing aspect of union with Jesus Christ here in these verses. Paul says, verse 8, that he counts everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. Those of you who are married, when you speak of knowing your spouse, you know them as you do because you are united to them. Paul counts everything that might have given him confidence in the flesh, he counts it as trash in order that he might gain Christ, in order that he might be found in Jesus Christ. Then we have perhaps one of the clearest statements in all of the New Testament, of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God 
that depends on faith. Paul, in losing everything that he might have boasted of in this world and in losing what he might have tried to boast before God with, he comes to regard all of it as trash. And now, in his union with Jesus Christ, everything that is Christ's is now his. Christ's righteousness becomes Paul's. It's a point that needs to be made. The imputation of Jesus Christ's righteousness is not some cold, bare legal fact like all the opposers of imputation like to make it out to be. That's not some bare legal fact. Imputation happens within the context of us being united in body and soul to Jesus Christ so that everything that is his becomes ours. Paul is so united to Christ, and he desires even greater experiences of that union which is there, so that he longs in verse 10, Oh, that I may know him, that I may know his resurrection, that I may even share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. I mean, whoa. How many of us want to be so united to Jesus Christ that we're willing to say, Lord, if it takes me going to the cross just like you did, I'm prepared to do it if that's what you've called me to do, that I might gain you. But when we're united to Christ, that's what precisely happens because his death is our death. I am crucified with Christ. I am dead with Jesus Christ. His righteousness is our righteousness. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. So when we forsake our fleshly confidence, what do we get? We get Jesus Christ. We get union with him. We get him. You and I are so united to Jesus Christ that we share in everything that is his. And while we do share his sufferings and his rejection and his death, we also share his heavenly father and we share in a glorious inheritance. We, we share, not in the same sense obviously, but we share his sonship. We've been adopted into the family of God. Now the father calls us sons and daughters. We share his throne, right? Ephesians 1, we've been raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places. In the next world, we will reign with Jesus Christ forever. What in the world are we living for? Why are we so foolish and silly to place our identity and confidence in the things of this world when we have a glorious union with Jesus Christ that results in a glorious inheritance. What, what is a few years, a few short years, of rejecting ourselves for Christ in comparison with the eternity that is to come? It's nothing. Because he's going to come down and call us out of the grave. Come out. Forsake it all. Lose it all and gain Christ. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it pierces to the very dividing of joints and marrow. We're grateful that it 
has the ability to decipher the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we're thankful, Lord God, that even with all the shameful sins that we have committed, that we are nevertheless united to Jesus Christ by faith alone. And we pray we would make him front and center. We pray that we would be those who are willing to forsake all and to give up whatever it takes for us to gain him for eternity. We thank you for this great gift in Jesus' name.